Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are starting a new series to take us through the Advent and Christmas season. This series will be looking at types of the birth of Christ throughout the Old Testament. And here the guys will be talking about Genesis 3.15 and the promise of the seed that will crush the serpent's head. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Genesis 3.15. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, James B. John. And uh, we are today celebrating the return of Jeff Myers. Uh, Jeff has been absent from the last several episodes of our Daniel series. Uh, He was finishing up a sabbatical during which he was writing a commentary on the epistle of James. Uh, We hope in the beginning of the new year sometime that we'll be uh, working through the epistle of James together and uh, Jeff will be able to give us a preview of what he's got coming in the commentary. Uh, We did finish our prophets series in the last couple of episodes. We covered uh, Daniel 12 and uh, did a little summary session on Daniel. Uh, And so we're starting a new series. It's going to be a fairly short series and a seasonal series. Instead of taking on a book, uh, we're uh, going to be looking at uh, types of the nativity uh, as we approach the Christmas season, looking at the nativity of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, and the birth story of Jesus, but also and particularly focusing on uh, types and shadows and foreshadowings of the miracle birth of Jesus that we have throughout the Old Testament. When we started listing them off, we came up with, I don't know how many, a dozen and a half different passages to talk about. And uh, James pointed out that if we tried to do all of them, it would put us into the middle of next year before we were finished with the series. And we'd, we'd miss Christmas before we ever got to Jesus. Uh, and so we're going to shorten it. We may pick up the same theme next Advent, but uh, during this pre-Advent season and through Advent, through the Christmas season, and probably up through roughly about Epiphany, we'll be looking at, first of all, types of the nativity, particularly in the book of Genesis. We're going to look at, at several miracle births in Genesis, and then uh, we'll be skipping ahead to the New Testament and looking at some of the birth stories of Jesus. And then, as I said, maybe next year when we get back to Advent, we'll be looking at some of the other birth stories. It's a, it's a, rich, it's a rich vein of biblical theology to look at these stories. Uh, birth stories are a, a, a crucial part of Israel's history. When I was uh, writing my commentary on Revelation 12, the vision that John sees of the woman uh, in labor in the sky, uh, I concluded that the woman was Israel and that what's being depicted there is Israel's entire history as a birth story. Israel exists in order to be the mother of the the seed, the Messiah. So this is not a, a small theme. Uh, and in order to understand the fullness and depth of what's happening when Jesus is born, we, we want to look at it through these typological eyes. Uh, in this first episode in this series, we're going to be looking at Genesis 3, focusing on Genesis 3.15, which is the promise of the seed, the promise of enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And uh, it's often considered the first uh, evangelical prophecy, the first prophecy of the gospel. We'll have a chance to discuss that during during the course of the episode. But just to set that up, I want to, I've been spending a lot of time in the early chapters of Genesis, teaching a Sunday school class on Genesis 1 right now, and uh, doing a, 
uh, Theopolis regional course on creation. So uh, one of the things I just want to start out with something I noticed that's relevant to Genesis 3.15. The root seed, the same, the same Hebrew word, uh, doubles as, the, as a verb and a noun. And that root is used, first of all, in uh, the thir- third day, the count of the third day in Genesis 1. Uh, grasses bear seed, fruit trees bear fruit with seed in them. Grasses are seeding seed. That's the, that's the language of the text. And then that same language is repeated at the end of at the end of chapter one when God offers the plants that He's created on day three to the to the land animals and to man as their food, and you have that same repetition of the verb and the noun seed. And if you sum those up, there are ten of those uses um, in Genesis one, uh, eight uses of the noun and two uses of the verb. And then as you move forward into Genesis, the next uses of those words are in. Genesis 3.15, uh, the seed, the Lord speaking to the, to the serpent says, your seed, that's the 11th use of the, of the root, and then her seed, which is the seed of the woman, is the 12th use. So we've got this numerological thing going with the notion of the seed that uh, may, be, may help us uh, figure out the, some of the fullness of what's being promised here. The seed of the woman is the 12th use of that passage, so we have a numerological connection between the promised seed who's going to bruise or crush the serpent's head and uh, the number of Israel, which of course has Israel's not appeared yet in the book of Genesis, but we already have this kind of uh, preview that there's going to be some connection between the seed of the serpent, uh, seed of the woman rather, and the rise of a, a 12 fold people from the seed of Abraham. Hey, Peter, do you see also a connection between uh, like a botanical connection there? You mentioned the third day, uh, Genesis 1, um, uh, and then after uh, the um, <clears throat> Lord speaks to the serpent uh, and also to Adam, you have a reference to the ground. Um, the ground is cursed with reference to Adam and Eve, and it will bring forth thorns and thistles, those being the seed of the serpent. Um, is, is there a connection there? Yeah, I think that, I think that works. And the, the other connection I would make is the, uh, link at, uh, between the garden, which has trees in it. And the, the word seed is not used in the description of the garden, but you do have trees that are fruit trees. And we've been told in Genesis one, that the fruit trees bear fruit with seed in them. And then you have the next thing you have bearing seed is the woman who is fruitful and she's bearing fruit with seed in it. So Eve is created as part of the garden. She's a fruitful fruitful vine or a fruitful tree in the garden, and it's going to be the fruit of the woman that's going to be the uh, the life-giving food. In contrast, as you say, to the, to the barren plants that come up from the ground. Uh, I guess the other thing I would want to emphasize from that, the plants are the first things that bear seed. Uh, the only things that are said to bear seed in Genesis 1 and that gives a particular, I think, thrust to see not only the botanical connection that you're mentioning, Jeff, but uh, plants are the first things in the creation that reproduce themselves. The possibility of producing seed or the, the fact that things are blessed with seed is a promise of future reproduction, of future perpetuation of a species. Plants can reproduce things like themselves into the future, and human beings also are like fruit trees, they bear, they bear fruit that has seed in it. Uh, seed, seed and semen is, are linked linguistically in a number of languages. And uh, 
Seed is the word for, for semen in the Bible. So you have this idea of human beings have, which points to a, um, you know, the seed is, is inherently a promise of the future. The seed is the possibility for reproducing and, and perpetuating the species, perpetuating humanity uh, beyond the current uh, existing members of the human race. One, one direction I might uh, raise with the, the, the link that I'm making between the seed and the, the numerological link I started with, Victor Hamilton in his commentary on Genesis uh, makes the observation that uh, the word seed in the singular, as it's used in Genesis 3.15, is typically uh, referring to an immediate offspring of the person that uh, bears the seed. It's the, it's the son or daughter of the person who bears the seed. When it's used in the singular and it refers to, it doesn't usually use, it's not usually used in the singular to refer a very distant to a very distant descendant. When it's used in the singular though, uh, it often has a corporate sense. We'll see this when we look at the uh, stories of the patriarchs. The seed is a promise, uh, the, the seed promises a promise of a posterity descendants. So raises the question to me, the numerological indication, and then the fact that seed has the possibility of this corporate meaning raises the possibility that this initial promise, uh, I think it is a promise of Jesus, but it's the promise of Jesus as a kind of corporate personality, a kind of embodiment of uh, the people of God, of Israel, and also a promise of a uh, seed of the woman is going to be a people that bruises the serpent head and not merely an individual. Right. I mean, it's worth mentioning perhaps that death is in the background of all this, isn't it? Sometimes it can be hard to imagine that you're reading a narrative for the first time, but as you do read it, pretending that you're reading it for the first time, you know, at this point, you just assume that God is going to kill Adam and Eve, don't you? Because that's what's been said that on the day um, that you eat of this, you, you are surely going to die. Um, and and the, the promise clearly does involve um, death and death is in the background of it, but it's death um, and redemption it, it stretched out over the backdrop of a huge course of history um, rather than sort of one immediate pronouncement that just suddenly ends everything. Yeah, that's a great point and, and kind of reinforces the links that I was teasing out. In the face of that death, in the face of the curse, the Lord is promising that the human race is going to be perpetuated, that it's not going to end then and there on that day. Uh, and it's not going to be subordinate to the serpent forever. So there's a, in, in the face of curse and death, there's, a, there's hope for the human race. One thing that I found helpful to reflect upon is the homology between some of the curses that can help us to understand some of the deeper connections that are taking place. So for instance, we can see parallels between the judgment upon the woman and the judgment upon the man. Um, in both cases, there's judgment that involves pain and um, toil. In both cases, there's judgment involving seed um, or the fruit. And in the case of the woman, it's the struggle within herself to bring forth. In the case of the man, it's the struggle to bring forth from the earth. In the case of the judgment upon the serpent and the judgment upon the man, we see cursed is your cursed more than all cattle and then cursed is the ground for your sake. The going on the belly, the toil, eating dust, eating of the ground, and then all the days of your life at the end of both. 
and it seems to me that the more that we take these together, the more that we can see something of the deeper logic of the curse that's taking place and that will be resolved. In part, for instance, the tension between the serpent and the woman is going to be played out in the struggle that the woman has in bringing forth um, in bringing forth children and in the way that the man is going to struggle to bring forth good fruit from the ground. And that's related in turn to his relationship with the woman, his struggle to bring forth good fruit in the sense of seed. He's going to have this continual difficulty of bringing forth thorns and thistles like Cain rather than Abel. And the more that we take these together, I think the more that we see that they are deeply intertwined. The Lord has placed a sort of um, firewall between certain relationships, whereas the man and the earth used to have a very positive, um, natural fruitfulness that yielded to the man's efforts. Now there will be friction, and in the same way with the woman and the man, which I think also highlights the relationship between the woman and the earth. Before we get the promise of the seed in, in Genesis 3.15, we have this statement that the Lord is going to put enmity between the serpent and the woman. And uh, that, that raises a couple of questions for me. One, one is, why is the enmity placed there? Why is it not the enmity between the serpent and the man? And then this, the, there seems to be some connection between the promise, or it does seem like a promise of enmity between the serpent and the woman. What's the connection between that and the seed? The enmity provides some kind of context for understanding what the seed, the conflict of seeds is and what, what the, the seed the woman is to do. Uh, what's, what's the linkage there? One of your questions was why the enmity between the serpent and the woman and not the serpent and Adam. Um, I, I guess really simplistic, obvious answer is the way the fall played out with the serpent deceiving the woman. Um, and yet, yet we all, I think, know and agree that Adam gets the, the, um, gets the lion's share of the culpability here because of the way he failed to guard the garden and the prize of the garden, his wife. Um, but I'm not, that's, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure uh, how to answer it with specifics. Uh, why, why the woman and the serpent are at odds? Maybe someone has an answer. Well, th one, one thought I had was, it, and this is picking up on the observation you made, Jeff, about the way the fall plays out. The fall is directed at, e or the temptation is directed at Eve. And uh, Paul describes this as an attempted seduction. And a lot of the satanic attacks uh, on the people of God, on the bride of God throughout the Bible are, are take the form of a, a satanic attack on, uh, on the bride on, uh, in order to seduce and raise up ungodly seed from the woman. So that's just another data point in the, in the way the temptation goes that, uh, you know, the, the focus will be, uh, the focus of enmity will be between the, be the woman and the seducer. And I guess following up on that, the, the woman is going to bear the child. Is the woman going to bear the child that's going to rise up to be the serpent's spawn, as it were? Or is the woman going to bear the child that's going to rise up to be the serpent's uh, enemy? Uh, and so 
uh, setting the, I like Alistair's description of firewall, setting the firewall of enmity between the serpent and the woman is a way of preserving the seed and ensuring that the seed rises to become not a, not an ally of the serpent, but a defender of the bride. Perhaps it would be worth reflecting upon the meaning of the expression um, in verse 16 and then in chapter 4, verse 7, concerning the desire of the woman and then the desire of sin. I wonder whether, certainly in the case of chapter 4, verse 7, it seems that this is the serpent desiring Cain. He's crouching at the door. Um, Cain's heart is in some sense comparable to the garden in chapter three, and the serpent wants to come in and take charge of it. And in the case of the woman, her desire might be the desire for her husband to um, give his strength to her cause. And Satan wants the same thing from Cain, from the serpent, from the seed of the woman. And in this case, the resistance is first of all, on the heart part of the woman, but then also hopefully on the part of her seed as well, that her seed won't give way as Cain actually does. I wonder if part of what's going on here has to do with the kind of different significance given to the man and the woman in the role of reproduction and, and in, in the role of, of just perpetuating the seed. You know, um, it seems to me like, in scripture, the man is particularly associated with shaping the identity and, in that sense, perhaps the destiny of, of what's going on. And, and so um, genealogies are largely traced through men, um, almost entirely if you go through something like 1 Chronicles. And where there are mixed marriages between um, tribes and so forth, it, it seems to be largely the male identity that sort of um wins out if, if you like and and so even those kind of let's say ruth is incorporate incorporated into um judah's line it, it's still largely judean and, and we can give other um examples so the man is connected particularly perhaps to the identity and to, and to promise but the woman largely i, I guess just to the life force and uh, fertility and, and so on. Um, we have the woman given the name Eve here, which has to do with kind of life-giving. And, you know, we could look forward to the Exodus narrative to see similar um, connections. They're the midwives. Um, it, it's talking, it, it uses a slightly different form of, of, of the word Eve throughout that narrative. It talks about how the Hebrew women are... Um, I can't remember how it's translated, vigorous in some translations or, or lively um, in, 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 in others. And, and um, I wonder if kind of particularly what's going on here is, is that Satan is, is going to be against that, that life-giving um, nature of, of, of the woman and is, is wanting going to want to produce uh, sterility in, in, in that sense and just to be against life and, and flourishing, particularly in its female emphasis. Uh, just another note, uh, supporting your first comments about uh, the role of the father, the male. Um, it's uh, not in, invariable, but it's typical for the man to name the child, which is a, you know, gives the destiny and the, 
uh, shaping of a future that you talked about. Uh, so that that would reinforce that kind of connection. I like yeah, I like the link that you made between the woman and fertility, and then that's the fertility can be she can give birth to you know as I said spawn of Satan or she can give birth to the seed of the woman uh, who is a deliverer, and in order to ensure that she's giving birth to the latter, then uh, that uh, that protection is set up of of uh, hostility between the woman and the serpent. I, I wondered uh, on my other question, uh, what's the relationship between the enmity and the seed? I wonder if, is it too strong to say that the birth of the seed is itself a kind of, is a sign or token of the enmity between the woman and the, and the serpent. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm jumping ahead to what uh, is said about Jesus, that he's a, uh, he's a he's a sign of opposition. Uh, he rises for the rising and he's there for the rising and falling, a sign or a token of the rising and fall of many in Israel. Uh, and I wonder if uh, that's already implied by the link between enmity and seed here, that uh, the birth of the seed is going to be a point of division. Well, as you said, Peter, it's certainly the case that when Jesus is born, that provokes uh, the satanic anger attack. Um, that's also true isn't it in Revelation 12? It's the it's the birth of the seed that riles the serpent into attack mode. Um, of course, the serpent tries to prevent the birth of the seed. We see that all through the story, especially in Genesis, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, with the Pharaoh and with the satanic attempts of Pharaoh and then Abimelech to block the birth of the seed. But then once the seed is born, there be, there's this conflict, this uh, renewed conflict that takes place. Maybe picking up on some points that we've already mentioned, but emphasizing um, one aspect of them. The conflict is between not just the serpent and the woman, but between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. One of the interesting things about that is that the serpent is at least presented as a sort of male char character within the story, not presented as a, a female that's bringing forth seed itself, but as a rival in some ways to Adam, a, a husband-type figure that wants to raise up seed for himself, perhaps. And the conflict is between the seed of the serpent and not his male counterpart, Adam, but the woman. And it's curious to me why that would be the case. Why would the seed be particularly associated with um, the woman on one side and then the serpent on the other side? Um, why not the serpent and Adam? That's a really good question. Anybody have any speculations? I guess the only, the only reflection I have on what you say, Alistair, I don't have a, I don't have a good answer to the specific question, but it fits with what we've been discussing with the, the way that this, uh, this passage plays out through the course of biblical history. Uh, the satanic character is an, a, a, an aggressor male uh, who is trying to steal the bride. That's the, as uh, Jeff was talking about, that's the uh, storyline in the different Exodus stories of, of Abraham, the Exodus in Egypt, various other stories that the assault is from the satanic husband, as it were, the false husband 
at the bride to the bride and the the the, uh, the deliverer is the child so but I'm, that doesn't that doesn't answer the question so much as just uh, reinforce it why why is that set up we do have obviously we have false brides and mothers arise later on in biblical history when Jerusalem and Zion become harlots and are depicted as being promiscuous brides rather than faithful brides Yahweh. Uh, so we do have the a conflict between mothers, but the initial thing, at least in the book of Genesis, is exactly what you're describing and what's described in 315, which is the the uh, satanic male figure attacking the uh, female figure. My speculation would be that um, Adam is essentially dead. Um, he's not going to be the source of life. The woman is looking, as it were, for a husband figure, a, a faithful one to raise up to um, bring her strength against the serpent. And the serpent is either trying to take the woman or he's trying to capture her seed, as in the case of Cain. And the hope now lies in the offspring themselves. Um, so the true husband will be not Adam, but the... Um, the last Adam, um, the second man. And that maybe explains something of the, the opposition that's taking place. The husband is not Adam over against the serpent. The husband is actually identified more with the offspring. Yeah, that's that's helpful. And I wonder if there's a, uh, picking up on your idea that Adam is already considered dead, he, he's not going to be the father of the seed that's going to deliver them. I mean, do we, does that suggest a kind of a very veiled hint of a miracle birth, a, a birth from the dead, even a virgin birth that's already here? That's um, over the course of the centuries, that's been suggested from different translations of Genesis 3.15, because seed in Latin is semen, in Greek it's sperma. So those uh, linguistic connections have been uh, uh, spun out as uh, as uh, hints of the virgin birth here, but I wonder if we we take the full picture here in a world of death where Adam is Adam is not capable of raising the seed that's going to deliver. It's going to be the woman's seed. There's no hint of a of a of the father of the woman's seed. So it's going to be a divine intervention that's going to produce the child who's going to be both deliverer and ultimately the ultimately the proper husband. When you were talking, Alistair, and also Peter. It took me up to um, Exodus 4 in my mind, where um, Moses and Zipporah are coming back into the land of Egypt from Midian with their um, sons. And oh, actually, I think it's just with their, well, their firstborn, Gershom. And then Zipporah is going to circumcise the son. And when she circumcises that son, that's a, a kind of a death and resurrection motif, obviously. You cut away the old Adam and you bring forth a new flesh. She calls him, surely not Moses, but the son, a bridegroom of blood to me. And so that uh, Zipporah, the woman, recognizes that the son is somehow going to be her deliverer, her bridegroom, and through the bloody circumcision. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting connection because then you do have the the son bridegroom link, which is a, a just a, a 
instinctively odd connection to make, but that uh, it comes up again in that in that connection. I wonder another question I want to raise uh, that uh, question that's raised by Victor Hamilton's commentary. Uh, he reflects on the verb that's used at the end of the verse, end of Genesis three fifteen, uh, translated as bruise and bruise in my New American Standard. Sometimes it's translated differently, but it it does seem to be the same verb. But the there are some commentators who suggest that there are two different related verbs, or um, at least in terms of their spelling, they're related. There's a pun, in other words, in the in the two verbs. One is one does mean shatter or bruise. The first one, he shall shatter your head. And then the second is uh, a verb that has a similar form, but means something like desire or crave to long for something, to long after it. So Kasuto's in, in his commentary on this passage, suggests that the there's actually a pun. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent while the serpent seeks after the heel of the uh, of the seed of the woman so it's not a it's not a symmetry it's there's a kind of symmetry because the words are similar but he's suggesting a pun and the that would place uh, uh that would make make it clearer that the um the seed of the woman is the victory in this he's going to shatter the head the serpent's seed is going to try to strike at his heel desire to strike at his heel but his head will be crushed. Any thoughts on that? Or do you think the, the symmetry of the two bruise and bruise, crush and crush makes better sense? You know, I, I had a short comment on the actual um, form of this verb bruise. Apologies if you've done this already and I, and I missed it. Um, as I say, I had a fire drill to contend with here. But um, uh, the, the verb that's used for bruise, it, it's, it's actually a word that can refer to a snake. So it's not attested explicitly in Hebrew with that sense, um, but it's very well attested in other languages like Arabic and Akkadian. Um, and it appears in um, rabbinic Hebrew with the sense to creep and so, or, or to crawl or something like that. And, and so it, it's pretty obvious to kind of think that that could be a, a denominal from a, a serpent word of, of some sort. And that, puts quite an interesting um, uh, slant on things, I think, in that the, the seed of the woman kind of out-serpents the serpent, if, if you like. There's, there's this um, obviously very deep sense in which death w- will be defeated by death. And that sense in turning the, turning the enemy on himself and, and triumphing uh, over him by his own means is obviously th- throughout the destruction of the serpent you could think of things like the bronze serpent and the way in in, in, way in which that is turned into a means of of death and and various other things in scripture too yeah and i think uh, immediately of the the lex talionis of the woman the woman who deceives this deceives the satanic attacker so you have that uh, that kind of symmetry the woman out serpents the serpent by deceiving the deceiving him and overcoming him. And just a, a, another, uh, just a general support for the idea that there's some kind of uh, wordplay going on here. Verse 14, we haven't uh, paid much attention to, but the, the initial curse is cursed are you from all cattle and from every beast of the field. I don't think that's a comparison, but a, it's an exclusion. It's the, the serpent is being banned 
from the more respectable kind of animals, the cattle and the beasts of the field. But the word for curse there is similar. It kind of, it doesn't quite rhyme with, but it uh, shares some consonants with the word for subtle uh, that begins the chapter uh, and is the description of the serpent. So now the the subtle serpent, who's more subtle than any beast of the field and is there classified as a beast of the field, is now going to be banned from the uh, beast of the field. I think the, the word curse is arur. Uh, the word uh, subtle is something like a room, but you have that, you have this, uh, you have that pun going on there. It makes sense that you would have other kinds of plays going on in the, in the following verses. Getting back to some of your points that you made earlier about um, subtle hints of resurrection here, Peter, I've often drawn attention to the connection between the judgment upon the earth and the judgment upon the womb. And the way in which in scripture we see these things very closely associated, particularly in scriptural po- poetry. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return there, or knit together in the lowest parts of the earth. And the way that the earth is described like some, the earth and the grave are described like a barren womb in Proverbs chapter 30. And then the idea of the earth giving birth to its dead, I think it's Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. And in these connections, I think we see something about the way in which man has been banished from the fruitfulness of the earth. We see this in a more intense form in Cain in chapter four, and man has been removed from the garden. And this removal is something to do, I think, with the this barrenness that is associated with the earth, but then also associated with the womb, a constant theme within the book of Genesis. There is a connection between the woman and the garden. And I think also between the garden of Eden and the womb more particularly, the garden of Eden is the enclosed space that Adam and Eve are supposed to mature to the point where they're prepared to leave and rule within the earth. It's the the womb within which humanity is first going to grow. It's a place of water and fertility. It's a hospitable realm in which they're protected. And it's like the womb in um, John 7, 7, where out of his belly or his womb will come rivers rivers of living waters. Um, The temple is also in some senses like the womb of the world, the spring from which life flows. And elsewhere in places like Song of Songs, we have this association with the enclosed garden and the woman and the way in which her fertility and fruitfulness is going to be like the opening up of that garden. And so for that reason, this banishment from the garden and this um, struggle to give birth, I think those things should be connected together. There's a sense in which there needs the earth needs to be made fruitful again, and the womb needs to be made fruitful. And the earth, which has received like a barren womb, this constant flow of the dead, needs to be opened as well so that the firstborn of the dead can come forth. And so within the Gospels, I think we do see this connection between the birth of Christ and his death and resurrection and the description of the resurrection in terms of birth, because it is this opening of the womb, which is the opening of the um, of the barren womb of the tomb or the earth. Yeah, another connection we could bring into that, Alistair, is that when man does to, is readmitted to the garden, as it were, in the person of 
Jesus in his death and resurrection. There is another uh, womb and tomb similarity, isn't there, in, insofar as Jesus comes forth um, from uh, Mary, from a, a womb which hasn't known a man, which a man hasn't come forth from um, before. He's then buried, ultimately, in a tomb in which a man hasn't been um, buried before. So there's that sort of symmetry in, in Luke, certainly, in the two bookends of Luke there. Maybe we can uh, kind of draw some things together and think about what uh, what your comments at the end there were were uh, bringing Genesis three into connection with the gospel story, but other other things that we could learn about the trajectory of salvation history from Genesis three fifteen. It's already indicating a certain certain direction for things, as Alistair and James have just been pointing out. Um, but I think we could we can. Uh, Think of other things that we've, or kind of summarize some other things that we've talked about. I think the the fact that you have enmity connected with the coming of the seed is a is a crucial thing. It's not very Christmassy to think about that um, Jesus' birth is a cause of conflict and you know a mass murder of small children. But that's in fact what happens when he comes, and he's a sign of opposition, as uh, as Simeon calls him. Um, and so that that uh, that enmity and that conflict is part of the part of the story of the coming of the sea. The other thing I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on my one of my initial comments about uh, the corporate idea, the corporate character of the seed here, that the promise is not just about a, a singular individual uh, descendant, but the seed that's going to crush the serpent's head is the corporate person Jesus, but then also his people who are going to trample the serpent underfoot. So that would give a that would give a particular trajectory. Uh, when when Hamilton points this out, when Hamilton makes the comment that the seed has a corporate uh, is meant corporately here, he suggests that that's a reason to think or reason to doubt that it, this is a a uh, proto evangelium that it's the first first proclamation of the gospel. I think not. Then you know the gospel is not just about the coming of the one man, Jesus. It's about the coming of the one man, Jesus, who is the last Adam, who is forming a new humanity. Uh, and Jesus and his people, Jesus with his body, uh, is the seed that's going to trample the serpent's head. I started that out as a question, and then I went on a little discourse. But uh, does that uh, does that ring true to you, or you you all think the corporate idea is, uh, is, is uh, too sketchy? No, it, it rings true, and it's made explicit, remember, when we were going through Daniel in Daniel 7, where Daniel is given this vision of uh, one like the son, the son, the son of man coming to the ancient of days and receiving a, a, a dominion and given a kingdom. But then later on, when Daniel's vision is interpreted, remember, um, it is that the ancient of days came and, and gave to the saints of the most high and the saints possess the kingdom. So remember, it's pretty clear there that the Son of Man, obviously an individual, as we know from the Gospels, Jesus, but also a corporate, in the corporate sense, he also represents um, and uh, uh, has a people, the saints, who possess the kingdom. I think Daniel 7 is a good connection or a good answer to that question. We could add to that the reference to the God of peace crushing Satan under your feet shortly in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. And I think also yep. so many stories, as I think you mentioned this before, Peter, the way in which 
um, women deceive the serpent in key stories. Think of Michael deceiving Saul or Gael deceiving Sisera or Esther deceiving Haman or Rahab, the men of Jericho, and a lot of other stories like that. And along with that, we have stories of heads being crushed, Goliath in serpentine armor having his head crushed by David. And I think it's appropriate to see in those a sense of the corporate crushing of the serpent and the serpentine figures. Yeah. Another way in which I think this particular promise to Eve is taken forward is is the story of Balaam. Um, Talking beasts, you know, aren't that common uh, in the Bible. They're not that common anywhere, really. Um, And so we might want to make a naturally connection to Balaam's story in that we have the talking donkey. And um, there are another, uh, there are a number of other ways in which that story seems to reverse and and undo this um, this curse of creation. And so, whereas Genesis three condemns man to return to the dust, um, in Balaam's blessing of Israel, which is obviously triggered by um, his experiences with the donkey, um, he says Israel as a whole um, will become as numerous um, as the dust and. Whereas in Genesis three, you've got the imagery of dryness and, and thorns and thorns. In Balaam's oracle, um, Israel's future is to do with complete fertility and, and palm groves and uh, well-watered gardens is, is one of the terms um, used there. And there are some very interesting um, verbal connections that link the two things together. Um, we were thinking about how Eve the seed of Eve kind of out serpents the serpent. And we've got that same idea in Balaam, in that uh, Balaam is said to be a, um, a sorcerer. Um, I can't remember how it's translated now, but the the, the term is, is nachash. Um, it can refer both to divination or to a, um, a serpent. And so the serpent of Genesis 3, that nachash is, you know, his curse is started to be uh, undone uh, by the nachash. And you've got another interesting um turnaround in that the um the phrase sort of like sometimes it's translated as like aloe trees it's it's ahlim it's it's basically the word elohim but with the let's call them the h and the l um reversed and so while uh you know the serpent lies and says you'll be um like god k elohim um in the reversal of it in balaam's um oracle israel are made um k ahlim you know so there, there's another Reversal, and and so there it seems to be Israel as a whole, which is involved in the um, undoing of the curse. So there's another idea of a, a, a collective seed. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>